0: All right, very good. So, hey, uh, dads, bless you guys, and don't we need it. Amen, dads? We need all the Lord's blessing and the help that we can get. Uh, Again, Father's Day, not unlike Mother's Day. I know that for so many people it can be a complicated day, a day maybe of some mixed emotions. Um, But wherever you are uh, in, in that sea of mixed emotions today, whether you're rejoicing about Father's Day or... Or, or sad or regretful or whatever it is, uh, we're glad that you're here and bring those, all those emotions, that sea of emotions to the Lord, our Heavenly Father. Uh, again, as Kissy uh, so wonderfully prayed this morning, um, he is our Abba Father, and he desires to have that, uh, that kind of an intimate relationship with each one of us. So, um, so kids, you guys are dismissed uh, preschool through Fifth grade, you're headed out with teacher somebody, and youth group, you guys are headed out with MC Donjay today, DJ Donjay, Pastor Donjay. You're headed out with Donjay, so get out and go out there. So dads, we um, we didn't give you guys a flower when you came in this morning, but we're gonna give you a root beer float before you leave on the front patio. So. After service, the youth group's going to be serving up root beer floats for everybody. Um, and this is the one day of the year maybe where dads get to go uh, first in line. Um, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, we so really hope you'll come out this Friday night for that Friday night fellowship at Gary's house. Uh, no, we're not announcing her address on the World Wide Web. That's why we're asking you. You can either see Gary, and of course she just left to go teach the kids, so I, I can't even have her raise her hand. But you can see Gary to get the address, you can email the church office, you can text that number that's in the bulletin, and we'll make sure you know where you're going and when to go there. Um, and as Pastor Jeff said, if you can bring along something to share, we'll provide a burger bar, but if you can bring along some sides or some snacks or, or some drinks or whatever it is, desserts, um, it'll be a great time um, just hanging out. There's no agenda, uh, we're just hanging out, fellowshipping uh, in the Lord. So we're going to be in Mark chapter eight this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to put a Bible into your hand so you can follow along and just make sure I'm not making stuff up as we go. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll we'll bring one to you. Uh, you can certainly use a Bible on your phone if you'd like. I'll be teaching out of what's called the New King James Version. Uh, if you want to follow along in uh, in that translation, this isn't a Father's Day message per se, but uh, hopefully it'll bless. Uh, the dads that are here, hopefully it'll bless everybody that's here. So let's pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to do just, just exactly that today. So Father, we thank you for today, and we do thank you for all of the dads, Lord, that are here uh, represented in the church. Lord, we thank you for our own dads. Pray that you'd bless them, Lord, uh, on this day, and we thank you for this day just to honor uh, all of them, Lord. And we pray this morning as we continue in our time of worship, Through our study of your word, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher. We pray that you would quicken our hearts, Lord, open our ears uh, to what your spirit has to say to your church this morning. And we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would be our teacher today. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. So working our way right, right along through Mark, we finished last week with what we saw was this wonderful yet kind of a puzzling you remember account of the healing of the blind man there at Bethsaida and you remember Jesus touched him that first time and then the, the man said that he saw men but they were walking around kind of like trees and then Jesus touched him yet again and then suddenly he saw things clearly and we saw and we we said that this was both a miracle but it was also a parable right, that it was actually a parable within a miracle because it becomes this beautiful picture of kind of that progressive nature, right, that process that we are all in the middle of as Jesus is gradually restoring our spiritual eyesight. He's bringing us out of that spiritual darkness that we are all in uh, as a result of the fall. And this morning, as we continue on, we're going to see Jesus now continuing on with that process in the lives of the disciples. And we're embarking into what we said last time were these discipleship chapters in Mark's account. And from that point where we were last week in chapter 8, here with the progressive healing of the blind man there, all the way through to about the end of chapter 10 with what is the immediate healing of another blind man on the road to uh, to Jerusalem. In between those two miracles, right? these two miracles that both involve this beautiful restoration of sight, comes this section now where we see Jesus really pour into his disciples to really develop their spiritual eyesight so that they can begin to see things in a much more crystal clear way and we're going to see that all of that starts as they understand this morning first and foremost they really see how to see Jesus himself clearly and i think today's text it's going to give us some incredibly important insights and some critical critical concepts Uh, that are key for us to understand, again, as we progress in this very same process in our own lives. So here we are in the town of Bethsaida, right there, right at the very north end of the Sea of Galilee. And we read in the very next verse, so this is verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. It says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. So here's Jesus and the boys, they're making their way now due north, and they're getting away from all of the multitudes that would have been down there in the Galilee. They're headed up now toward kind of the base of Mount Hermon, and probably they're following right along the what are the beginnings of the Jordan River as it flows in to the Sea of Galilee. And this was a walk that would have been about 25 miles until they reached the area of these towns of Caesarea Philippi. Now, the more that we know about this area, the more that we're going to see that this seems an awfully strange place for a Jewish rabbi to take his disciples. But we're also going to see that Jesus did this for a very, very strategic reason. There was an object lesson here for the true lesson because Caesarea Philippi, it was this city located there, in this very lush area there at the, near the source, we said, of the Jordan River right there on the southern slopes of Mount Hermon. But it was a place that had long been sort of an epicenter for pagan worship. So this was the ancient site for the worship of all the false gods of the Canaanites, right? The worship of Baal and the worship of Ashtoreth. It had become the site then for the worship of the Greek god Pan, right? This kind of part goat, part human kind of satyr, right? This demonic spirit who was said to be the god of nature. And so the area there had become to be called Pannius, right after Pan. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, when he came along, he really expanded the whole region. He built up the city and he built up a temple there for the worship of Caesar Augustus. And of course, then he renamed the city after Caesar. So Caesarea. Now, the problem was there was already the main Caesarea, which was another Caesarea, which was actually located out on the coast of the Mediterranean. It was sort of the main port at that point for Israel, and it was also the seat of Roman power in Israel. So just to avoid confusion, right? Herod the Tetrarch, or Philip the Tetrarch, one of the sons of Herod the Great, also names the city, you guessed it, after himself. So we have Caesarea Philippi. But it was just this area that was this mix of all kinds of different pagan worship, from the Canaanites to the Greeks to the Romans, you name it, they still had it. And there was a temple that was constructed there to each one of these false gods or each one of these different false systems of worship. So just, again, this incredible concentration of paganism and idolatry and wickedness. And as a result of this, to the Jews, they considered this to be what they called the gates of hell, which was appropriate both spiritually and also geographically, because right there at that ancient spot, right there where you can see those ancient temples were, right there at what is the base of Mount Hermon, you have this massive rock mountain that you can see kind of rising up, but right here at this spot, which by the way we will visit next year when we go, today it's called Banyas because that's the Arabic word, right, and since there's no P sound in the Arabic language, Panias became banyas, right, but it's here at this spot where we'll see this deep, deep recess. It's this dark cave that goes right into the heart of the mountain and from which all of these underground springs flowed, and it was over this cave that they had built that temple to Pan because in the minds of the pagans, right, to the pagan mind, this this spot right here at Caesarea Philippi, this created a gate to the underworld. They saw this as a passageway directly to Hades where in their mythology, that's where the fertility gods went and lived during the winter, and then they would return to the earth each spring using this very cave as their access point. So this cave, they thought, was a gate to the underworld, more literally a gate to Hades, or would we would say, a gate to hell. And so this is the spot where Jesus is now bringing his boys for this time of their deep discipleship. And I have to tell you, the disciples at this point must have been more than just a bit bewildered by this. Because understand, Caesarea Philippi, this would be not unlike us getting up and announcing one Sunday morning that our next men's getaway weekend, we were headed up to the red light district. Right? We're going to spend the weekend in the red light district up there in the city. Right, This was a place which the devout Jews would have avoided at all costs. They wanted no contact with the kinds of really despicable acts of pagan worship that would have been happening here. So Caesarea Philippi, this was a city of people who were eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. And yet this is the place where Jesus now takes his disciples, and it becomes for us such a fitting and a powerful, such an appropriate picture, I think, as they're now surrounded by this incredible cross-section of all of the different things in the world that men and women, you know, are confronted by, and that they have given themselves over to in terms of worship before they come to know the true and the living God. And I think that it illustrates for us that that very first step in seeing Jesus clearly is to be able to see him even in the midst of the pagan paganism and idolatry. And this very same situation, I'm here to tell you, it's the same situation that each one of us is in today. Because we now live in a pagan nation. There there are many people who would consider the United States at this moment in our history to be what they call a post-Christian nation. And in many ways, we all know it to be true, we are here right in the epicenter of all of it, here in California, especially here in the Bay Area. In many, many ways, it is us, we set the tone for the trends and the culture of the entire country, and what do we do right through our tech? We just push it out right from here out to the rest of the country. The, The truth is, if you want to be a missionary, you don't have to go overseas anymore. All you need to do is what? Walk right out the front door. So we know about Caesarea Philippi, right? We kind of live in California Philippi, I think. We know about idolatry, we know about paganism, but the thing we also know is just how gloriously, brightly the Lord Jesus can shine in the midst of all of these things. And so here I think it's beautiful, right? Here it's against this backdrop really of evil and of darkness that we read in the rest of the verse. In verse 27, so he and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am, he asks them, because the restoration, right, the sharpening of our spiritual vision will always begin by answering that question, who Jesus is. And it always begins there as we start to see him in a more clear way. And what we see from the response of the disciples next, that this is a question to which there is no shortage of different answers. Look at verse 28. It says, so they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others one of the prophets. So here the disciples don't waste any time. They're quick with these responses. They're going to tell Jesus exactly who other people think he is. Some of them are saying, you know, you're John the Baptist. We remember Herod. Herod even thought that John the, Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. So all of these people are saying, look, you know, people see you as a great moral reformer like John the Baptist was. They notice the way that you're calling on men to change. They notice the way that you're calling men to repent and to turn towards God, right? Now, others say that you're Elijah, They see you as supremely as a great miracle worker because, of course, that was one of the marks of the ministry of Elijah in the Old Testament. He was a great miracle worker. And because there was a very specific prophecy in the book of Malachi, which declared that Elijah would return before the Messiah came. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, still there were others who simply said that Jesus was another prophet in this long line of Old Testament prophets, right? Sent to Israel to speak to them on behalf of God, uh, to be a great teacher and, a, and a, an instructor of the people about God and about the things of God. And it's interesting because in Matthew's account, the disciples mention that some people think that Jesus specifically is the prophet Jeremiah, Now, Jeremiah, interestingly, we know that he's known as the weeping prophet in the Old Testament, right? He had such a tremendous heart of compassion for the people of God, and he wept over the judgment that was coming upon them. And so here these people are saying, look, there's a number of people who see you as a great example of love and as a great example of compassion like Jeremiah was. And so here's the thing I think we notice about all of these different views of Jesus they're all good, right? They're all very complementary. And each one of these different views recognized Jesus to be some sort of a spiritual authority. And it's interesting because, in a way, they are all saying what Nicodemus had said. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, right? The very first episode of Nick at Night, right? Nick at Night, right? Some of you guys are old enough to... Okay, this was way, way back, right, in the, in the early ministry of Jesus, that first year. And Nicodemus recognized at that point, it says in John 3, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So at this point, there was kind of this consensus You could say about this carpenter from Nazareth, they saw that he was a man of holiness and a man of purity and a man of power, and yet they were missing out on who he really was. Of course, missing out that he was the savior of the world and the king of kings and lord of lords and God himself in the flesh who had just stepped in to human history. And of course, that very same thing is still happening today. Because if you look around, there are plenty of people who are happy to consider Jesus in a pretty positive light, spiritually. And yet, nevertheless, they would not want to give to Jesus that position that he repeatedly claims for himself and about himself. Right? There, are, there are lots of people who are glad to say that Jesus was a, a great moral teacher. As a matter of fact, there's one person who literally said, Jesus was the greatest religious genius that ever lived. Right? There are some who see Jesus as a wise man. Some would say that he's a, a great prophet. Someone even said that Jesus was the first socialist, which was great if you're trying to advance socialism. Right? But again, these very same people would be willing to say these kinds of complimentary things about him and who will affirm that yes Jesus was an important spiritual or moral leader in our history at the very same time they would adamantly deny the very claims that Jesus himself would make repeatedly about who he really actually was. I mean, just take two, for, a, for instance, these powerful declarations Jesus made in John thirty, where, 1030, where Jesus says plainly, I and the Father are one. Or John 14, 6, where he says, clearly, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So, you know, in so many ways, including, you know, very often he would apply the names of God or the attributes of God to himself. But in so many ways, Jesus Jesus made it perfectly clear that he was God incarnate. And then he proved it by his words and his miracles. And then finally, of course, by his resurrection. So the only problem with all of these other opinions about who Jesus is the only problem with those opinions is that his life and his teaching simply did not and still does not allow for them at all. Right? We need to see Jesus clearly right, in the midst of this paganism and idolatry and we need to see him clearly in the midst of these many conflicting opinions. Years ago, there was a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, and I know that many of you are familiar with him, and he was a professor at Cambridge over there in England. At one time, he was an agnostic as it related to God and, of course, as it related to Jesus, who ultimately, though, converted to Christianity and became a brilliant author and an apologist for the Christian faith. And he's regarded by Christians and secular people as one of the great intellectual giants of the 20th century. Arguably one of the most influential thinkers of his time. And here is what he declared on this subject. It's in his book, Mere Christianity, which by the way is one of the books on our summer reading list. And you may have heard this excerpt before. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, where they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else, He would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. He says you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, He says, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, right, a powerful quote. And C.S. Lewis so clearly articulates here, there is kind of this great trilemma, right, not a great dilemma, a great trilemma. Uh, that the life and the works of Jesus sort of produce for every person as they look at him. And it only allows a person to conclude about Jesus one of these three things, that either he is the Lord, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. Those are the three options. Those are the three possible answers to the one question that every single person on this planet has to answer. So now here Jesus has just asked them, who do men say that I am? And so now he asks his disciples what is the most important question that any person will grapple with in their life. Look at the beginning of verse 29, where he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, if you write in your Bible, put a star right here next to this verse. Put a digital star or a something, something, whatever you do, because the entire gospel of Mark has been moving to this moment. Right? Everything in Mark, Mark's gospel so far has been coming right to this question. And the way that Jesus' words expressed it as it's expressed in the original text, in the original language, that word you, right? Who do you say that I am? It has the sense of you in contrast to everybody else, right? Like Jesus is saying, look, here are all these other thoughts out here about me, these conclusions that other people are coming to about who they say that I am, but now who do you say that I am? And the point that Jesus is making here in asking this second, right, what is really the most important question in light of the first question that he asked is first of all, I think essentially saying that the consequences of a person's answer to question number two, right, who do you say that I am, that I can't accept the conclusions or the answers of other people to the first question, right, who do they say that I am, because so very often they are so very wrong. I can't accept anyone else's conclusions. I have to come to my own personal conclusion concerning Jesus, right? We need to see Jesus clearly in the midst of all of these conflicting opinions by really forming our own opinions. Right? I can't accept the conclusion even of my father or my mother or my grandmother or grandfather, aunt, uncle. I certainly can't accept the conclusion of my cultural anthropology professor, professor or the person down the road or my next door neighbor or even my very best friend. Because the conclusions that people come to are so often so very wrong about Jesus. And the stakes are so high, I have to come to my own deeply personal conviction. And by asking that first question, notice Jesus says first, who do others say that I am? I think he's recognizing something important for us because Jesus is recognizing the fact that anyone who does come to the right answer concerning who he is, that we have to do it in this sea of of conflicting opinions about him and wading through all of these wrong conclusions about him. And I think that it tells us that Jesus is both keenly aware and he's also very sympathetic to that dynamic. And we just think today about how many people are speaking for God, right? How many people are gonna try to speak so very authoritatively for God today? And oftentimes they're speaking out of the great well of their very limited experience, or their limited understanding, or just their limited knowledge of the Bible itself. You have all these people out there who are speaking authoritatively about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've never even read the Bible. They've never read the Gospels. They've probably never read one Gospel from end to end. And then you have a person who's out there trying to find the truth about God, and they're looking for the meaning of life, and they're looking for the truth about Jesus, and I think that Jesus recognizes that we are trying to do that in a sea of contradictory and wrong information about him. You know, Jesus says, look, I know there's a lot of different opinions about me. Let's not pretend that you're not coming into contact with them every single day. So, of course, the question is, who do I believe? Concerning Jesus. What information do I believe about him. So that I can come to a proper conclusion about him. Well I will tell you right now who you can believe. You can believe Jesus himself. Right. That's pretty safe ground. You can believe the witness of the Holy Spirit, right? That still small voice as it testifies in your heart about the truth of what Jesus has said about himself. And let me tell you that Jesus has made it easy for every single person to come to the correct conclusion about him because he has given us the answers to the test in his word. And then he testifies to them Through his spirit. So the most important question. In all of human history. Is an open book test. Amen. So verse 29. He says but who do you say that I am. And of course famously Peter answers. And says to him. You are the Christ. So of course it's Peter. Right to be the first one to blurt out the answer. And yet in this case. It was exactly the right answer. And Matthew sort of expounds on this exchange. He tells us this, that Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus says, look, Peter, you're right. And the reason that you know this is because God himself has revealed it to you. Right? Peter didn't come to this conclusion based on his own powerful intellect, right, or his wonderful superior skills of reasoning. Peter had come to this conclusion because he was speaking here by divine inspiration, even if he didn't understand it at the time. That Jesus indeed was the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, God the Son come to earth in human flesh. And we know that this had to come from the Lord. I mean besides the fact that Jesus said that it did. But we know this had to come from the Lord because understand that Peter would have not naturally been able to draw that kind of a conclusion because of the background and the understanding and all of the deeply preconceived ideas ideas that the Jews had wrongly developed about the Messiah, right? The Christ. They were steeped in it. And now really quickly, this whole idea of the Christ, right? Christ is simply the Greek word Christos for the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah. And it simply means the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, we have all these different people we see that are designated as being anointed of God, right? The prophets were anointed, and the priests were anointed, and the kings were anointed. And it simply signified that this was somebody who God had his hand upon and was working through and so what happened over time they began to come to this realization this whole idea of someone being called anointed that the scriptures were predicting that all of this was going to culminate in one person right that one day there would be not just a messiah among many but that there would be the messiah and that the messiah was going to be The anointed one, the one who God had specifically commissioned to come here into the world and to finally put everything right that has been so wrong. The Messiah would come to heal and to liberate and to deliver and to redeem. Now, of course, in the context for the Jews, right, their focal point, of course, was Israel. And then the, the rest of the world would benefit from that as well. But more specifically, they were looking at Israel. So there was this tremendous expectation at the time of the disciples. At this point, there had already been a number of different people during the lifetime of Jesus and just before. Many people who had come along and claimed that they were the Messiah. And they always sort of fit the same sort of a specific bill of being a, like a military or a political type of a person. And that person said they were going to come in and just overthrow all of these oppressive powers that were oppressing the Jewish people at that point, And that they instead were going to restore that wonderful kingdom of David. And of course, we know historically all of them failed, right? They were all ultimately wiped out. And yet, so now here comes Jesus on the scene. He doesn't fit at all into this picture. He clearly was sent from God right like nicodemus said and so many you see but he obviously was so very different because what he had is this amazing spiritual authority and a spiritual power that no one had ever seen before power over disease power over demons and so when when he asked them this important question and peter says well you're the christ well that was the right answer And yet Jesus knows that the boys still didn't really understand what the question was, right? So Jesus had come, he had not come to deliver them militarily, but he had come, of course, to deliver them spiritually. And look what Jesus says next in response to Peter's wonderfully inspired confession. Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, verse 30 Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Again, that's a little bit puzzling, right? Well, chronologically, we know that it wasn't yet time for this ultimate revelation of who Jesus was, right? That would come in its fullness at the crucifixion and after the resurrection from the dead. But at this point, The boys themselves were not yet ready to go public with this news because they themselves still had a very incomplete understanding of who Jesus was. Jesus says, I don't want you out there proclaiming this half an understanding. And so what Jesus is now going to do is he's going to continue this process of opening up their spiritual eyes to educate them about who the Messiah really is and what the mission of the Messiah actually is versus what they had thought it would be. Right, so seeing Jesus clearly in the midst of this paganism and idolatry and in the midst of these conflicting opinions by really forming our own opinion and seeing him for who he really is and seeing him for what he's really done. And so, again, at this particular moment in the ministry of Jesus, there are some that would look at this as kind of the watershed moment because now his identity. Is identified right his mission is now clarified he is about to lay this out plainly for them yes indeed he is just who Peter announced him to be but there was so much more wrapped up in that than these guys ever could have imagined look at verse 31 it says and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again and the beginning of verse 32 says he spoke this word openly All right here he is now alone with just the 12 and Jesus starts speaking right no more parables Now he's speaking plainly. He's speaking clearly. He's speaking openly about all of these things that lay ahead for him. And he begins by confirming for them, right? He wants to encourage them, you guys are absolutely on the right track, right? He refers to himself, notice, as the Son of Man. And by doing that, what he was doing was tying himself in their minds to one of the most famous one of the most recognized of all of the Messianic prophecies. It's from Daniel chapter 7 where the Messiah is clearly identified and called the Son of Man. It's the vision for you Bible students, it's that vision of the four beasts, right? The coming rulers of these coming kingdoms. And it's that vision where Daniel sees in a vision, he sees God himself, right? The Ancient of Days seated on his throne. Here's what it says in Daniel 7. He says, and behold, so there's this scene he's seeing of the throne of heaven. Behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So the kingdom that Jesus, as the Messiah, the Son of Man, came to establish was to be the everlasting kingdom. So he essentially says, look, you're right. I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of Man, I will establish God's kingdom, but we're not going to get there the way that you think. Yes, we're going to get there, right? That revelation that Daniel had is going to happen. It's all going to happen, but it's going to happen through a very different kind of a process. It's actually going to happen through my death. It's going to happen through my rejection. It's going to come about through my suffering. And notice here, Jesus says that all of this, look at that word there in verse 32. He says it all must happen this way. So it must happen that way, first of all, just in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies that had predicted, but more so it must happen this way because it was the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and it was only his sacrificial death which was sufficient to pay the price for our sins and to accomplish the real redemption of our souls. Right. In Ephesians 1, it says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And Peter says, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by perdition, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Right? It was a life for a life. It was his sinless life given for our sinful life. So this was the redemption that the Messiah would accomplish. So again, they were right about who Jesus was. They were learning what it was that he would ultimately do, yet they didn't understand yet the extent to which he was really going to do it. And they certainly didn't understand the process was going to be very, very different than anything that they could possibly imagine. It wasn't going to go down like they thought it was going to go down. Right? It wasn't going to be the Messiah riding in on some sort of a white stallion with all of the armies behind him and overthrowing those awful oppressive Romans. Right? That's not how it was going to work at all. Because Jesus was going to do battle against forces that were much more formidable than even the Romans. Right? Jesus came to do battle with the devil and with the demons and with sin and with death itself and you see that's exactly what Jesus did. He came and went, he went right to deal with the root of the problem. See even to this very day all of the efforts by people to fix the world are just basically trying to deal with the symptoms. All of the problems in the world today are just symptoms of the bigger problem that's why they never go away. And we have these moments when things seem to get better for a season, when we we think as humanity, right, we've got this dealt with and we've got this thing covered, right? How many times have we heard this idea, you know, in our day there's going to be finally peace on earth, and it's like no sooner does somebody say that, what happens? A war breaks out somewhere, right? It's like if you have this lawn, right, a big, beautiful lawn, and you notice in your lawn all of a sudden you have these patches of what? weeds and so you decide okay well i'm going to deal with those weeds i'm going to get out my lawnmower and i'm going to go out i'm just going to cut all those weeds down and you do that and what happens everything looks wonderful for about a minute right but you can be sure right no more you know problem solved but give it enough time and what happens of course the weeds are going to come right back And what also happens, they bring some friends along with them, right? Why? Because the roots are all still there. And the only way it's going to change is if you get out there and you give up an entire Saturday and you dig your fingers or some kind of shovel or a fork or whatever you are digging these things up with, but you got to go down and get that thing out by the root, Right? That's the only way you're going to get rid of your lawn of weeds. And it's that same picture as the weeds of sin just continue to grow and to blossom amongst human beings. Right? We have these temporary fixes. We have these moments in history where we got everything taken care of. Why? Because we just cut the tops off of all the weeds. But before you know it, something else is just cropping up again. And that's what happens when all you deal with is the symptoms. The root needs to be pulled out. And that is what Jesus did. He got right straight to the root of the problem. The problem is sin. The problem primarily is not a material problem. It is a spiritual problem. All the problems in the world and in our lives are due to sin. Due to the fact that mankind has joined in this cosmic rebellion against the creator of the universe. That's the problem. It's our sin. And Jesus came and he dealt with our sin once and for all. Right again, Peter says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we having died to sins that we might live for righteousness. Right? The problem is Satan. The problem is all of his demonic spirits that are working and manipulating and con- controlling things behind the scenes. There's this link between Satan and human beings and its sin. Right? He first deceived human beings into joining in with this rebellion. And so now there's this thing, this horrible thing that links us continuously to the devil and it's our sin. It's like a chain that attaches us to him and this control that he has over our lives. And so what is it that Jesus does? Well, he comes down and he deals with that. He deals with the sin itself. He breaks that link between us and the devil. That's what sets us free. He sets us free from that chain so we can now go on to flourish and to be blessed and to prosper spiritually because of what he's done. And that's what we need to remember in each of our lives, right? This is who he really is, right? That he's Christ our Savior. It's what he's really done. He has set us free. And this is now how he actually did it. Right As Paul says in Colossians, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen is right. Now the great news, he is going to do that on a worldwide universal scale in the future. Just like the prophecy predicted the Son of Man would do. And to him, dominion is going to be given over all people and all nations and all language. Everybody is going to come under this authority ultimately. But presently, it comes down really to individual lordship of Jesus over individual lives of individual people. And you remember we mentioned this earlier on in our study through Mark, But again, I'm just going to say it quickly as it relates to the kingdom of God. We said we're living in the already, but the not yet. Right? On the one hand, we need to realize, yes, Jesus has come, the Christ has come, the Messiah has come, and he has sort of inaugurated the coming of the kingdom of God in this spiritual sense. And now individual people just like us and like anyone else on this earth, we can now enter into that kingdom in this phase that it's in now simply through trusting in the king. Right As we bow our knee to the king and we can enter into this kingdom and we become part of the church. The church which is not the kingdom but it is the visible manifestation of that kingdom now at this time on the earth. It's the organism through which Jesus is doing his work on this earth and it is a work that Jesus himself promised would ultimately prevail, a work and an organism that will prevail against all evil and even against the devil himself. And this is where, where they are as they're having this very clarifying discussion with Jesus where Peter makes this declaration about Jesus. This is why Jesus brought them here to this place why he has them up here in the red light district to reveal himself in this way. Remember, again, it's Matthew in this kind of expanded detail, right? He says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Right? On that declaration of the work of Jesus as the Christ. On the declaration of what Jesus would do as the Messiah, on the solid rock of the truth of who he is and of what he did, Jesus will establish his church on on the earth, and the very gates of hell will be powerless to prevent, prevent, pardon me, that work that he's trying to do through us and in us. So here they are at the very epicenter of paganism, and Jesus is clearly declaring our ultimate victory over all of it. Amen to that. Because for the Christians, who holds to the same confession as we recognize who Jesus is and all that he accomplished, we will individually be able to prevail against every attack, even of hell itself. Jesus has, be- his victory has become our victory as his people, as his church All of us who make that same profession that Peter made, nothing that comes against the church of Jesus, right? Not hell, not death, not sin, not Satan, not any of it. None of it has any hope of prevailing against us because God's purpose is to continue the development of this kingdom through the church. It was built not on Peter. It was built upon the solid foundation that will always prevail And that will always hold. And that's Jesus Christ himself. Because in 1 Corinthians 3. In the context of the building of the church. Here's what Paul says. He says that no other foundation can anyone lay. Than that which is laid. Which is. The apostle Peter the first pope. No wait it doesn't say that. The foundation which is laid is Jesus Christ. And that is such a wonderful thing, an encouraging thing, just for us to sit and think about here this morning as a child of God, especially as we look around at this world we're living in that seems to be getting shakier and shakier by the day. And just to remember, we may not always know how Jesus is working things out, whether we're looking at our own lives or whether we're looking at the world but we do have this solid assurance that he is indeed working things out and that they will always work out even though he's working them out in a way that doesn't make any sense to us. So this is where we just need to rest in his promises, rest in that revelation and that that he's given us in his word. And that is something at this point that the disciples and especially Peter were not quite yet prepared to do, right? Jesus had just laid all of this out and he had just, as Mark had told us in the beginning of verse 32, he spoke plainly. Look at the rest of verse 32. What happens now? Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay. Now, on the list of the top things you don't ever want to do, this may well go at the top of that list. And I will tell you that I personally have had some conversations with God that were pretty challenging, right? Pretty passionate in prayer, like where I'm crying out, Lord, I'm just not getting this at all. I was deeply confused at different times by different circumstances that were happening within my life. But I will say that I try my best not to question him. Not to question his judgment, to try to understand it, but not to question it. But here, Peter, he takes things right straight to the next level, right? Not only does he question what Jesus said, but he actually starts to rebuke him, right? To challenge him or to correct him. And what Matthew tells us that Peter said is, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Look, I know that you're the Messiah. I just said it, so you know that I know it. You're the great king. You're going to sit on David's throne. You're going to judge the nations. You're going to rule the universe for all eternity. But I'm a fisherman, right? And I have now been doing this disciple thing for a couple years now. So I'm going to straighten you out on just a few things here, Jesus. This whole death deal, this is not the program, right? Let me tell you what the Messiah will do. So Peter somehow knew way better than Jesus. Now, I typically don't drag my family into illustrations as part of sermons. But since it's Father's Day, and since I thought Noah was going to be out of the room in the youth group, but he's back, I'm going to do it this one time. When our kids were little, we would do this thing with them as we arrived back to the house, we would, where we would try to prep them for what it was we were gonna do next in the day. So as we would come driving in, we'd say, okay, kids, we're gonna go in, we're gonna take our shoes off, we're gonna go to the table, we're gonna have our lunch, we're gonna have our story time, then we're gonna have a nap, or whatever it was that we were gonna be doing. And so they would get this, okay, they, they knew the plan. And so one day, I unfortunately didn't witness it, but one day, as Michelle is coming home with the kids, she sort of laid out a very similar kind of a midday plan, right? Come in, have lunch, story, maybe nap time. So she says, okay, kids, so that's the plan. To which Noah, right there in his pink shirt and tie, which is not necessarily how we went to homeschool every day, but maybe that day, Noah was probably seven, eight, six at the time. Michelle says, okay, so here's the plan, and he says, no, mommy, that's not the plan. He says, this is the plan. My plan says, we go in, I play trains, then we have lunch while we watch our favorite show. He says, that's the plan, mommy. (laughs) (laughs) So Noah had a slightly different plan than mommy had, and he knew much better, of course, than mommy knew, not unlike Peter did. Now, I will say, we've got to give credit where credit is due, to Peter, I mean. And the positive here for Peter is that at least he had the sense to reju- rebuke Jesus privately. Right? He takes Jesus away, probably to the side from all the guys, because he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus. And so let me tell you something. If you are going to rebuke God, you should definitely do it privately. But not for his sake, right? For your sake because things are not going to go well for you, right? One of you is going to be embarrassed, but I promise you it is not going to be Jesus, right? Now, again, before we're too quick to sort of pile on the the Peter bashing train, understand his reaction here is completely understandable, right? Just based on his incomplete understanding of what the Messiah would actually accomplish, which just came from his Jewish upbringing, right? No good Jewish boy. It would not make any sense from a practical perspective that the suffering and the rejection and the death of the Messiah could possibly bring about this kingdom for the Jews. And of course, next in his response, Jesus gets right to the heart of the problem, which was Peter's perspective. It says in verse 33, when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. See, this is the problem. Peter was thinking of the Messiah strictly in human terms. He was simply seeing things only through that lens of fallen humanity, right? The things of men. He was just looking at the Messiah for what the Messiah could do that would be beneficial and helpful for himself and for his people. And what he couldn't see at all was the big picture at all. He wasn't seeing things from a heavenly perspective, right? He's not mindful of the things that God was mindful of. So in order for us to truly see Jesus clearly, we need to always see him with that heavenly perspective. And so Jesus has to rebuke Peter and show him that his perspective is all wrong. That the the Messiah's mission was much larger than simply Israel, that there was a spiritual, there was an eternal component to the work that Peter couldn't see, and that the cross was at the center point of that work of our redemption. Right? So Peter says, no, 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 Lord, let's do it this way. And Jesus has to rebuke him to set him straight, because at that moment, Peter was listening to the wrong voice. Let's be clear. Jesus is not calling Peter Satan. But Jesus knows the voice that's inspiring Peter. Because it's that same voice of Satan that Jesus knew so well. He had heard it back at the beginning of his ministry. Remember when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness. Remember here Jesus has come to redeem the world on this mission as the Messiah. And Satan makes all these attempts. It's the final attempt during the temptation. He's trying to end that mission before it even starts. And in Matthew 4... Again, Matthew gives us this complete account. It says, The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All of these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. Again, what Satan was saying here is, You don't need to go to the cross. Right? There's a way to glory that circumvents the cross. You don't have to go to the cross to get the crown. You don't have to suffer. You don't need to die. You don't need to go that route. I'll give you everything if you will just worship me. Right? Satan says, just do it my way. Just do it the easy way. So when Peter says to Jesus, not so, Lord, no way, this is not the way it's going to happen. This is not the messianic path. It's that very same suggestion that you can have all of this and you don't have to do it God's way. There's a shortcut. Right? And so Peter's perspective here, he's thinking just like people were typically thinking, but he's also thinking the way the devil thinks, isn't he? There's no need to suffer No need to do any of this. Basically, there's no need to do it God's way. And you know, when you think about it, we can do it ourselves. That is the essence of human rebellion. We don't need God. We don't need God to tell us what to do. We can just do it ourselves. We can figure it all out by ourselves. And of course, that is the lie that Satan is still whispering to each and every one of us today. Right. There's a better way. There's an easier way. We can fix this ourselves. And one of the ways that he does it is by presenting us with all of these different kind of false messiahs that we can follow after. And all of these different ways and shapes and forms. You know, when you think about it, we too are living in a time that's not that different than Peter and the disciples were living. We're living at this time where there is sort of this kind of a messianic fervor in our culture. And it's amazing we look around and we see how much there's this expectation in the culture of something that's going to save, something that's going to just put everything right, something that's going to really bring in that perfect world and so we have all of this huge emphasis whether it's on social justice or on equity or climate or the redistribution of resources or this new kind of this new civil rights movement, right, for these certain protected classes or on tolerance or acceptance or even the affirmation of all these different lifestyles. But there's all these different things that have come up now right to the forefront of the culture. And what is it all about? Well, it's all about a utopia that they're trying to create through these agendas, right? These people are finally gonna fix and create this perfect world with their own Messiah. And for some people, it's a person, right? It's a person that's, you know, it's like if this person or this party was just in charge, then everything would finally just be amazing. For some people, it's an idea or it's a philosophy, like, you know, if we can just really change the way people see things, if we can get them to see things from our perspective, right? For some people, it's an identity where they say, you know, if I could just express this certain identity, then that would make everything right. That's, gonna, that's what's going to save me. That's what's going to allow me to enter into this full and wonderful experience of life that's being kept from me. But the truth is, no, it won't happen. None of it will help because these are all just false messiahs and false messiahs do not deliver. They can never deliver what they promise because they are false. There is only one true messiah. Who came to deal and has dealt with the root of the problem. And there is only one who is going to bring in that messianic age. And that is Jesus. But here's the truth. That the world today is being primed even as we speak. Through all of these different things that we're seeing. These things we just talked about. These different kind of false messiahs. People are being primed for the false Messiah that will come on the scene right there because the bible says that there will come a man the bible calls him the antichrist he will come onto the scene of this earth right the antichrist the instead of christ the in place of christ in place of the messiah This is this person who's going to deceive everyone into thinking, including the Jewish people themselves, but this satanically inspired individual is going to deceive everyone into thinking that he is the promised Messiah that is going to bring about this kingdom. And he will bring about wonderful, satisfying solutions to all of those different kinds of social issues that people are looking to be solved. I mean, he will bring about Nobel peace winning kind of solutions. He will even usher in world peace and it will all look really good for a little while. But the truth is that what this individual is really going to bring about is the greatest destruction and the greatest oppression of the entire planet that this planet has ever known. But that is where all the false messiahs in your life will always lead you. They will always ultimately lead you down into the pit. Even if there's a temporary time of, of peace and prosperity and excitement and, and glory, it is short-lived and it won't last. It will crumble. And so I promise we are closing, but you know, maybe you're here this morning and maybe there's a situation in your life where you are looking for a Messiah you're looking for someone or something to come in and bring peace and deliver justice and to bring equity or to usher in righteousness into that situation and there are some options out there that are looking pretty good. There are some options out there that are looking a lot less painful than taking up your cross. Right? They look easier than what the Bible says to you that you need to do. And all you need to do is compromise a little bit here or just things a little bit there from what the Bible says to do. And all of that can be yours. Don't believe it. It is a false Christ that is a false Messiah. Do things God's way. Right. Be mindful of the things that God himself is mindful of. And maybe there are even some of you this morning and and you ultimately are still looking for the true Messiah. You're looking for that personal Messiah, that person, that idea, that identity, that philosophy. You're looking for that one thing that's just gonna make everything click in your life. And again, there is only one true Messiah for your life. There is only one Savior. There is only one person Who can bring in that messianic age of blessing and of wholeness into your life, and it is Jesus Christ? There's only one who can bring you into that kingdom, right? To usher you into that church and into righteousness and to peace and to joy, and that's Jesus. So don't get ripped off by a false Messiah. Right? Don't fall for all of those deceptive promises that if you just follow this or if you just do that, it's going to be amazing. No, it will not. It will not end well. What you need to do instead is simply start this morning to see Jesus clearly as the true Messiah. Right? To look through all of the paganism and the idolatry and the conflicting opinions. Form your own opinion but understand him for who he really is and what he really did and how he actually did it and really start to see him from the perspective of heaven. Amen? Amen. 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 So Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for your word and we thank you for um, the way it so clearly lays out who your son Jesus is, Father. And Lord, we just join together as your church and we pray that if there is even one individual who's here this morning and who doesn't know your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would be working, stirring their hearts even now, Lord, as we speak. Lord, that you'd be bringing that conviction, that you'd be drawing them unto you by the power of your spirit, Lord, that that you would open their eyes, spiritually speaking, that they would see your son, Jesus, for who he truly is. Lord, and that even now as we begin to go to a time of worship, Lord, that they would come to that place where they'd be prepared just to confess their need for your son. Lord, to desire to turn their lives over to him. Lord, and to have him truly begin to bring in that age of blessing and of prosperity and of glory and of wholeness. So, Father, if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that you're speaking to, Lord, we pray that they would, just in the privacy of their own heart, that they would just express that desire to you. Father, that if they, if they want to pray with someone, Lord, we pray that they would come forward as we worship. Lord, we pray that they would find someone next to them. Lord, we pray that you would do uh, just an individual miracle in the individual hearts of anyone here this morning, who needs that redemptive work to be completed. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey, as we worship this morning, if that's you, and if you don't know the Lord, and if you have questions, if you only sort of halfway understand, that's okay. Come up this morning or just simply raise your hand and we'll come to you. And we'll answer your questions, and we can pray with you that the Lord will answer your questions. And uh, we want to help you to begin uh, just a new relationship with him, to begin to, to see things clearly and to experience him in the way, uh, just to experience that intimate relationship that you were created to have with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up together and let's worship the Lord uh, this morning.